Okay, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show, my brand new free podcast dedicated to translating Trump. Well, we definitely have some translating to do today. Republicans in the House finally passed their Obamacare repeal and replacement bill, but have conservatives lost the larger argument about government-run health care? We'll tackle that big question with Jim Capretta. We'll also talk with Roger Robinson, the architect of the economic and financial takedown of the Soviet Union. We'll ask him how Trump should approach the dangerous world that America faces today. And finally, we'll check in with Steve Wynn to see how things are going at the Republican National Committee and the fight to keep a majority, the majority, in 2018. But first, I have to translate Trump. So let me say a few words about the firing of FBI Director James Comey. Um, Hysteria has overtaken Washington. Uh, at least liberal Washington, Democrat Washington, uh, the media too. I watched uh, Morning Joe. I watched a fair amount of CNN. Um, I, we are, they are all talking about Nixon, uh, Saturday Night Massacre, um, Nixon, 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 Watergate, Watergate, Watergate. Um, so the N word, uh, the Nixon word, and the W word, Watergate. I now soon expect the I word to appear, which is impeachment. Um, one of the other odd words is the C word, uh, the, this notion that in firing James Comey, the president has violated the Constitution. What? What, what provision of the Constitution? What article? What number? What page? What paragraph? What provision? Uh, no such thing as a constitutional crisis. Look, Democrats would disagree with Trump if, if he said the sun is coming up. And indeed, if the sun was coming up, they'd say, not really, or not in the way he means it. Um, I, I think the critical thing, and, and you know, we'll, we'll gav more over the next days about, uh, about the background on this. But to me right now, um, the critical thing, the, the document to read is the document uh, prepared by the Deputy Attorney General uh, Rod Rosenstein which lays out the case against Comey. Now, Democrats say, but, you know, the president was praising Comey. Well, um, I thought Lindsey Graham had a great comment this morning. He said, has anybody been, anybody on either side, truly been absolutely consistent on Comey? <laughs> that, Chris, I think that's a good comment, don't you? That's, people, that's pretty good. Haven't people changed their minds? I think, uh, I think they have. But here's the case why the guy shouldn't continue in office. Whether Trump likes some of the things he did or not, or liked some of the things he did or not, here, laid out by Rosenstein, uh, is the case against Comey based on the impropriety uh, of the things he did. Public discussion of things which should have remained private. Flexing his uh, his rhetorical muscle here uh, in contradictory directions, so as to uh, have influence uh, on the election. And by the way, I believe that's what he wanted to do. I remember Charles Krauthammer, my friend, and the esteemed Dr. Krauthammer said early on, a member a few months ago, um, and people shouldn't be faulted for what they might have said about Comey a few months ago. They should have to reconcile their record and what they have to say, but. Uh, one can understand a lot of things being said about him. But Charles Krauthammer said, um, you know, I think Comey wants to be careful because I think he wants to, doesn't want to influence the election. I think exactly the opposite. I think he did want to influence the election. I don't know that he cared which way it went, but I think he just wanted to be a big-time player. And, uh, and it's similar to the guy who went over to the hospital bed for Attorney General John Ashcroft 
when uh, Comey was the deputy and I think was just uh, pushing it, pushing himself. Entirely proper, legally, constitutionally, for the president to do this. It's laid out in the letter by Rod Rosenstein. Read that letter. And um, the president was within his rights. Well, what about the timing? Well, timing is explained by something very prosaic, you know, which the Democrats and liberals won't buy, which is that Rosenstein just got appointed or approved uh, at the end of April. So this was one of his first acts in office. He put the letter together. Okay. Well, why didn't he? Why didn't the president do it on the day he was, uh, of inauguration, uh, or the day after? He wanted to see the case made, and the case has to be made by the Justice Department. Um, uh, we know that uh, the Attorney General Sessions has recused himself from things relating to the Russia and Trump investigation, so it was proper and appropriate to wait for the Deputy Attorney General. By the way, as I understand it. Uh, all of the work that will go on in regard to this investigation and many other investigations uh, will uh, go to Rod Rosenstein uh, when uh, when they are completed. Um, the argument, by the way, that uh, that Democrats are making that oh, he sacked Comey to stop, to impede, to cut off the head of the investigation is crazy. Uh, Comey's not knocking on doors and talking to people and checking Russian telephone logs. Um, that's done by FBI staff or Justice Department staff. Uh, reporters then made to Rosenstein. That inquiry will continue. And by the way, just one other thing: the person who replaced um, replaced uh, the, the, uh, on this very day, Jim Comey, uh, we know uh, is uh, um, is uh, has a political identity, which is uh, easier to guess. Let me put it that way. Than Comey's, uh, his wife got seven hundred thousand dollars from Virginia Democrats uh, to run for office, and that's Mr. McCabe. Uh, we'll see what happens. We'll track it. We'll follow it. But for now, just tell your liberal friends to settle down, calm down. This is within the presidential prerogative. Um, there are not many full-time fans of Jim Comey. Uh, there are some fair-weather fans, and there are some foul-weather fans, but there are very few fans who were fans throughout all the seasons and all the weather. Um, he needed to go. He, he was getting too big for his britches. Um, the FBI guy should, uh, we should know who he is, but he shouldn't be quite so famous, quite as famous as Jim's, James Comey made himself. Chris, does that make sense to you? Any comment, any refinements on any of that? No, I think what you said right there at the end that no one is a full-time fan of James Comey is, is, a, is a great insight. You know, Hillary Clinton appeared, what was it, a week or two ago, and basically blamed Comey for throwing the election. Yeah. And so you had Republicans who were upset with Comey during the election uh, for coming out and they thought giving a free pass to Hillary. Then you have Hillary and Democrats upset at him. So there was really, I think there's really bipartisan agreement in that until we got to this Russia point. But to your larger point, how do you think this plays for the American people in Trump country? Or Because I think, again, I turned on CNN hysteria. I turned on conservative talk radio. People loved it. I think, again, this captures the disconnect in the country. I think people uh, in Trump country will either applaud it uh, or shrug their shoulders. Uh, they're certainly not going to get hysterical about it. Uh, and they're certainly, you know, if Democrats start to move toward, you know, this president is a threat, you know, is an autocrat, here, here's Hitler, etc., impeachment, uh, they're just going to dig themselves in a bigger hole. Donald Trump is not going to lose his supporters because of this move. That's my answer. 
Okay, uh, to be continued. We'll uh, continue to comment on this. I guess I've got to do some TV on this over the next few days. So check the website, check BillBennett.com, and now let's move on to some other topics. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Republicans in the House finally passed their Obamacare repeal and replacement, but have conservatives lost the larger intellectual argument over health care? Have we accepted the liberal and progressive argument that government must play a role in health care and that the free market can't work on its own? Those are the big questions we'll tackle today with a man who probably knows more about health care policy than anyone else in D.C. James C. Capretta is a resident fellow and holds the Milton Friedman Chair, that should impress everyone, at the American Enterprise Institute. Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute. Boy, you better be smart. <laughs> I know it's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, Jim. Thanks so much. Okay. What do we got here? What do we have here? Um, we have something that, well, AHCA sounds a little bit like ACA, uh, the American Healthcare Act, which is what the guy has gone through the House, the House passage, um, different from the ACA, uh, I suppose. What's most different about AHCA, the Republicans' bill from the uh, from Obamacare? Well, certainly the the Medicaid part of the AHCA is its most consequential section. I mean, it's a very, very significant reform of Medicaid, the most far-reaching you know entitlement reform in pretty much ever, if this were enacted into law. So its Medicaid section, I think, has been underreported in terms of its consequence, um, mainly good. And, and as, you know, from my perspective, it's a very significant structural change that would alter the financial relationship between the federal government and the states around Medicaid in a good way in the sense that it would have positive incentives for pursuing sensible reforms at the state level. Uh, it would bring some much-needed financial and budgetary certainty to the federal government, and it would alter the relationship in a way with the states that would bring more accountability to both parties in a way that I think would be beneficial. Now, having said that, I think the idea that Republicans are going to be able to sort of go rewind the clock on Medicaid to pre-ACA enrollment levels is, is unrealistic and probably not the right thing to do anyway. I mean, the country has been grappling with this problem for decades, really. And, you know, it's, I don't think it's terribly unconservative to say that there ought to be an income below which we have a safety net health insurance program. And that includes okay. for people okay. that are childless adults. And, you know, I think what they ought to do is try to find some middle ground between the states that went whole hog into the Obamacare expansion and those that uh, did not. And there they would find, I think, if they, if they did that, they'd probably find a safer place to stand than they are right now. Let me, let me uh, go back. Uh, will this... This this far-reaching change in Medicaid. Medicaid is that program for uh, people of uh, very limited means. I've also heard it referred to as one of the worst medical programs in the world. Um, it doesn't have a great reputation. And I think, wasn't there a study in Oregon that suggested people who were, had medical problems and weren't on Medicaid did better than people who were on Medicaid? In any case, it has its, it has its problems. Do these reforms... Uh, are they just financial, how money is spent, or, or could, they, could they actually affect the quality of care you get in Medicaid? That's a great question, and I think it's to the heart of the matter. You're right. Medicaid's record in terms of the actual provision of services to beneficiaries is very spotty. 
it's it's lots of studies have shown that it's suboptimal compared to commercial insurance. That's pretty much unquestioned. However, having said that, if you ask the people that are on the program, they're all going to pretty much say, well, it's better than nothing because it gives me access yeah. to some doctor. And and if I go, you know, blank, you know, uncovered, then I'm sort of scrambling around with, you know, charity care and low cost clinics and so on that aren't aren't going to be uh, as good. So. It's, it's very suboptimal, and it needs to be improved. And I think a big handicap of the AHCA in the House is they're writing this in a reconciliation bill where the, they can change the financial aspects of Medicaid, and they probably didn't do enough in the bill to allow the states to have flexibility to run it more. And okay. I'm hopeful that they can find a way to draft it better in the Senate so that they can couple the reforms more with the money and allow the states to okay. run the program in a way that integrates it more or with the regular health system. So it's not sufficient uh, in terms of how the program actually gets done and its care to patients as opposed to how it's delivered. That's correct. Okay. I think it's it's halfway there though, but th- it's a big step though. I mean, okay. they took okay. they had a lot of took a lot of guts to write this big Medicaid reform the way they did. They're going to take a lot of heat about it. And I think if they just give a little bit on the enrollment side, grab a little bit more on the state flexibility side, they might find a formula to to actually stand stand on and, and uh, hold their ground. I've got to make a reservation for more time with you when we can. I know your schedule and my schedule are just not matching up, but I have two more questions for you. Sure. And we'll let you go and get on airplanes and do all those other important things that the Milton Friedman chair chair must must do, I understand. What are the most important things, in your view, that um, the Senate should do to improve AHCA? Well, I think they they should strike a Medicaid compromise. That's probably the biggest impediment to getting to a bill that is more viable. If the country felt like, hey, everybody who's poor is going to be taken care of in Medicaid one way or another by the states, and we aren't going to have this patchwork, some expansion, some not situation, I think that would make people feel more comfortable. So I think they ought to do that. They ought to find a level below which everybody's eligible for Medicaid, cut a deal, and be done with it. Uh, second thing they need to do is fix the, the enforcement provisions around non-enrollment and insurance. We haven't talked about this, but they get rid of the individual mandate in Obamacare and they replace it with a one-year 30% surcharge on insurance. That actually turns out to be a little bit weaker than the individual mandate. So you've, you've got all, all the protections really still in place for people with pre-existing conditions, but you've gotten rid of the individual mandate and the thing you put in its place to try to keep people continuously enrolled in coverage is probably weaker, which is why the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, says the bill would okay. be a little bit more unstable than Obamacare. So those, I think those are two really critical changes they need to do. Okay, now let's go to 30,000 feet. Um, let me ask you this, because this has troubled me. I'm not a libertarian. Heck, I started life as a Democrat, became mm-hmm. a Republican. That was called a neoconservative. I don't know what I am now. But I support the president and this administration. I hope they do well. Uh, and was pretty vocal in my support. But this seems, and, you know, I just, I'm still having trouble absorbing, you know, this This is a very complex business to me. It, this still seems to me like an awful lot of government. Uh, isn't there a lot of government in AHCA? Is, is there less government in AH, AHCA than, than ACA? I noticed Charles Krauthammer said, well, we're halfway to single payer. Uh, Obama has won. Has Obama won? Is this is this big government 
you know, and we can't go back to no government or much more limited government. You see what I'm after here. I do, and you're asking a big, big question here. I know, and I know. It's it's a it's a tough one. I I put it this way, Bill, which probably is not hopefully maybe somewhat satisfying to you, but may probably not. I think that that conservatives really ought to approach this question from a, the perspective of saying we want people to have health insurance in the United States. We're going to have a safety net for to have people into health insurance when they can't afford it on their own, but we want it to be market driven, highly competitive so that it innovates, brings the highest quality care, is better than any other system in the world. I mean, I think that's the basic attitude they ought to bring to it. If they bring an attitude of, you know what, it's not the government's role to make sure people have health insurance, you're immediately in a conversation saying, well, why not? You know, if, don't we have an obligation if someone's born in our, to our society to make sure that they have some level of provision of health services? I think you you know enough to know that that's a tough question to say. No, they our society doesn't have that obligation. I, I find it very unlikely that the American public would agree with an argument that said we don't have an obligation to other people in that way. And so, uh, I, I think it's better for conservatives to approach this from a question of let's make sure people have health insurance, but do it in a market-driven, conservative way that brings high value and doesn't lead us into sort of one-size-fits-all, you know, uh, IRS-style health care for everybody in the United States, which is a big danger if you do too much government. And so, anyway, that's my, that's my basic orientation on this. Let me explore this a little more, because I, I think it's a, it's a very interesting question for where we are philosophically, not only on this question, but other questions in regard to the provision uh, of services by government to individuals. One of the themes, it seems to me, of the critics of uh, the Republican proposal, AHCA, uh, that's come out of the House, is, yeah, but the market, and, and I think there are a few examples of this in the bill, the market may not cover some people, or a state may decide to be somewhat arbitrary. That is, liberals, Democrats point to well, the market can be fickle. The market is okay for lots of reasons and lots of people, but it misses some people. And states can be fickle. So really, what about the guy who's left out or the guy and his kids who are left out? That's part of the appeal, isn't it, in this argument to make the federal government the protector of all and the provider to all. Uh, You're putting it very well, and I think that is really getting to the heart of the question. And and there I'd say, look, if you look at the AHCA, you get the Republican Party in the House embracing a plan that said basically everybody in the United States should have access to at least major medical expense coverage. That's really what they said. They said, okay, you're either in an employer plan or you got Medicare or Medicaid, Medicare for senior citizens and the disabled, Medicaid for low-income households. If you're not in any of those three things, employer, Medicare, or Medicaid, we're going to give you an age-adjusted tax credit that should allow you to get at least catastrophic protection for your health insurance. And then, by the way, this tax credit is rough justice because the employer system, by the way, has a big tax preference attached to it. So for fairness sake, you ought to get something comparable when you have to buy it on your own. That's basically what they're saying in the House bill. And that means that there really isn't a good reason for everybody in the United States not to have health insurance. Now, what happens in the estimating of this, they'll say, 
yeah, but the age-adjusted credit is too small for the cost of health insurance as we understand it today. And I think that's probably true. There would be a lot of adjustments that would have to be made. Middle-class people could certainly afford it. It's really people between about 100 and 200% of the poverty line, people that are working but pretty modest wages. Are the tax credits they provide in the House bill sufficient? And there, I think a little more give. I'm not asking the Republicans to do much, but a little more give could go a long way to saying, you know what, let's plus that up a little bit for people on the very low end, leave it the same for the middle class, and uh, and there you're you're getting close. You're getting close to a plan that everybody in the country would say, yeah, you know what, if you want health insurance, you can get it. Okay. Um, do we have? I would keep you longer, but but I I do want to get you for longer later. Uh, <laughs> sure. Um, do we have an example of, let's say this was enacted with the, the provisions that you recommend uh, here in this last answer, in the earlier answer, do you have an example of a country that has gone this far and not further, or is the inevitable effect to spill over, to push ad finem to the, to the final term, which is government, government control? Can you hold the middle? Yeah, no, that's a great question, too. Look, there's a powerful inclination in democratic capitalist societies to have public provision of education and health care. Obviously, every other country in the world, and to our country to some great extent, is in this game, you know, through the government. And so there is a very strong public inclination to say this ought to be something that's handled more collectively rather than so much involved uh, involvement by the, the person in the household. In the United States, we're trying to hold on to a level of personal engagement, personal responsibility, consumer choice, because the effect of that is better for everybody. The effect of it is to allow more space for innovation, for consumers to make choices that opens up the system to change and adaptation to new circumstances, new science, new discovery. That's why we want a market-driven system, because it can be better for people over time. Uh, can we hold that ground? I think it's, it's, it's possible. Look, we've held this ground we're on now for a pretty long time, and we haven't gone to a single-payer system. And the Republicans are really in the mode at the moment of pretty significant retrenchment from the lines that were drawn in the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, I'd, I'd say it's, it's, uh, if they do their job right and do it well, and they write a plan that the public buys into, uh, they got a shot. Okay, two last questions, quick and quick answers. And we'll, this is a preview, uh, coming attractions. Will there be a bill that will come out of um, conference? Will the Senate and the House get get somewhere, come up with something? I've been predicting all year that something eventually will pass. Okay. Uh, you know, it may take all year, <laughs> but something eventually is likely to pass. Maybe a little smaller than we're looking at now, but I think something will pass. When it goes to a vote, will there be any Democrats from the Senate or the House in support? Which which House? I think the, there's a possibility of getting some Senate votes if the if the Republicans start to play their legislative game a little bit more like your boss did, President Reagan did in the yeah. early 80s. Yeah, yeah. They tried to co-opt. 20, 25% of the Democratic Party into the agenda. I think if if this administration starts to think in those terms, there's a chance they could do that, but they better move quick, because right now their battle lines are pretty hardened. I, I said only two more, but I got one last one, because I want to take off on this one. What about the argument that some people made? Machiavellian, uh, let's just, you know, we're just going to get blamed for all the problems. Republicans, just back off from this thing. 
you know, uh, well, we couldn't come to agreement, says Mitch. We couldn't come to agreement, say, say Mitch and, and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. Sorry, Obamacare runs its course, crashes on the rocks, and then you put the pieces together. Yeah, I think the 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 possibility of the Senate not passing something that they end up getting stalemated is still pretty high. I, I predict yeah. that something will eventually pass, but they they could end up being, you know, log jammed here for a while. So I wouldn't rule that out. I don't think that'd be a calculation on their part. I think it'd just be with the natural course of events. That What's wrong with it as a calculation? Why not say, you know, otherwise we're going to get blamed for it. Let them get blamed for it. Look, we waited. I think, I think CBO is basically right. Congressional Budget Office is basically right that, yes, there are problems and instability in the Affordable Care Act exchanges, but it's probably not enough for the whole country to come crashing down. They're going to have two or three or four states where it's pretty bad. Okay. We're going to have 46 states where people are still getting coverage. And so is that enough okay. to say the whole thing is a disaster? I'm not sure. By the way, when we have this discussion uh, in the country, people talk as if Affordable Care Act or the AHCA uh, affects everybody. It doesn't by any means, does it? What, what, no, how many it people, really is, what percentage? It's affecting really about 5 to 10% of the country, yeah. right? So yeah. it's pretty small, yeah. small stuff. The but, big but, game is still Medicare and the employer system. That's where most of the people are. And will be? And will be, absolutely. All right, because I think when people hear you're going to lose, you know, your health care with the Republicans, it's people <laughs> who have employer health care, Medicare, they all think that. That's the point right. of the scare tactic. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of overheated rhetoric, that's for sure. Jim, travel well. We thank you very much, James Capretta. I hope you're not going Spirit Airlines. If uh, <laughs> if you no. do, don't riot, please, even if, <laughs> okay. even if your flight gets canceled. But uh, we thank you, Jim, very much, and, and we want to revisit this with you. You're, a, you're just a great resource for this and a national resource. Thanks. Thanks so much, Bill. Glad to be with you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right. It's time to change gears and turn to foreign policy. Each week, the American Strategy Group brings us important conversations on the state of national security. To learn more, go to amstrategy.org or facebook.com slash amstrategy. This week, we're delighted to be joined by Roger Robinson, the man behind the financial takedown of the Soviet Union. Roger is the president of RWR, Inc. Let me just say RWR are his initials, as well as President Reagan's lucky man. A consulting firm established in 1985, which provides real-time analyses of breaking geopolitical developments that could potentially impact international debt, equity, and currency markets. He served as Senior Director of International Economic Affairs at the Reagan National Security Council, where he was, according to President Reagan, the architect of the economic and financial takedown of the Soviet Union. He later served for the bulk of five years as the chairman of the Congressional U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. You can go to rwradvisory.com to learn more about his work. Let's let's jump right into this, Roger. You were Reagan's architect, uh, as I just said, of the economic and financial takedown of the Soviet Union. What, what did that involve? How, how did you do that? What was that? Well, that's a long story that I'll try to make very short. Uh, as you may know, I served as vice president division executive at Chase Manhattan Bank with responsibilities for the Soviet Union, Central Eastern Europe, and Yugoslavia for a number of years. Uh, I had done my master's degree in the economies of those countries. And basically, 
came to the view that their hard currency cash flow was anemic. They had $32 billion a year that they were making total, which was about a third of GM or Exxon's uh, annual revenues. Uh, they derived that from four sources, oil, gas, arms, and gold. As you can see, it wasn't a diversified economy. It didn't have much money. Uh, they were borrowing $16 billion more a year than they made without the ability to service that debt. And uh, and so uh, basically, I took a plan to the president uh, from Chase uh, that would uh, go after their hard currency cash flow, uh, starting with a Siberian gas pipeline dispute, uh, which later turned into a dispute. I should say this is a two-strand, huge pipeline, 3,600 miles long, that if fully subscribed, uh, would have uh, taken West European dependency on Soviet gas to well over 70 percent from the 35% it is today, mm-hmm. and uh, and doubled their hard currency income. So we started there by opposing that pipeline, especially when Poli- uh, Soviet troops were massing on the Polish border in 1981 for a potential invasion. Uh, they weren't going to have it both ways. And then we went after the credit arrangements, whereby they were getting Western-subsidized credits uh, uh, from Western governments, and that was obviously not on. Uh, so we terminated those. We had the Saudis pump more oil, uh, which uh, lowered oil prices. And uh, for every dollar drop in the price of a barrel of oil, it cost the Soviets about a billion dollars in earnings. And so piece by piece, with only about 12 or 13 people in the United States aware of this secret strategy, we were able to configure a way to put them in extremis. And uh, uh, they staggered on for six or seven more years, but uh, just days before the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, they defaulted on $96 billion in Western hard currency debt, which is no, no coincidence. So it was a major component of a multi-pronged strategy, to be sure, by the president sure. uh, to uh, affect that takedown. Let's talk about another prong, if relevant, and you would know. It's conventional wisdom in some circles, and I've always accepted it as true that, uh, and it's connected, I think it's connected to what you just said, that we were engaged in a defense buildup. I I know Gorbachev and all were terrified of our missile defense capabilities, which may not have been as great then as as the Russians feared, Soviets feared, but we were engaged in a defense buildup, spending money to do so, and they couldn't keep up. Is that connected, Roger? It is. That, that, that defense buildup, you know, the architect of which was Cap Weinberger and the president, of course, uh, was uh, stressed out the Soviet economy to a very substantial extent. And, of course, then you add the fear of the Strategic Defense Initiative and the fact that we would probably be able to, uh, to achieve those goals, much as we did in the Manhattan Project. The Soviets were convinced that we could negate their ballistic missile capability, their ICBM capability. And, uh, and of course, you had Bill Casey challenging them as CIA director across the third world from Afghanistan mm-hmm. to mining the harbors of Nicaragua. Uh, so they were stressed there. You had Gene Kirkpatrick, who is the U.S. representative to the U.N., telling the truth about uh, uh, the mm-hmm. evil empire, if, if, if you will, and the, uh, the nature of that regime in starkest possible terms. So it was a combination of things, not to mention the deployment of Pershing and cruise missiles yeah. to uh, make it clear that uh, we were not going to stand by to see uh, uh, European cities in such a close target range of Soviet missiles. And the list goes on. But there were yeah. about seven major components of the plan 
uh, the secret strategy, if you will, for the takedown of the Soviets. And I described a little bit about the economic and financial piece, but those are some of the other components. Yeah. Tell us how that world and the strategy that you employed uh, with Ronald Reagan compares to today's world. Start with start with Russia. Um, if one were to quote take down Russia today, or at least deal with Russia, um, uh, yeah, the the Russian economy, Bill, is 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 is, is still anemic, and it's still un, non diversified. Sixty six percent of their earnings still come from oil and gas. And so you, you haven't seen much of a change there. Uh, they do have better reserves than they used to have, and they have a somewhat more robust economy than the Soviets did. But, of course, it's a much reduced country from what we were facing and a much reduced threat, although the, the obviously the nuclear capability uh, remains intact and is very worrisome. So uh, we do have a situation here where they're trying to basically live off of our largesse in the international trading and financial system and the global markets. Uh, They're issuing stock on the New York Stock Exchange. They have access to funding that they never had during the Soviet period. Uh, We're making the, the erroneous assumption, Bill, that if it's legal and legitimate, it's somehow okay. That is, if they're yeah. if they're involved in buying up the strategic assets and critical infrastructure of post-communist states, including NATO members uh, in Eastern Central Europe, for example, trying to compromise their freedom of action, it seems to us to be okay, uh, even though these are strategic national security designs of theirs that are malevolent in nature, and we're not picking up on this kind of thing. So. The fact is that we don't have to have a prospering uh, uh, Russian threat the way we have today, uh, even though they're under the gun with some level of sanctions that are a fraction of what we could impose if we were serious, and we're not serious so far. So the fact is that uh, Putin's still riding high, and uh, he has inordinate influence, and we're permitting him to do this. Repeat again what what we what we would need to do. Did, did I hear you say? I made a note. I, I forgot to ask you that part of this plan to take down the Soviet Union came from the bank, came from the Chase Bank. Is that true? Your work with the Chase Bank? No, uh, Chase is uh, free and clear of that. It was my my was experience okay. there, however, <laughs> okay. in trying to judge Soviet credit worthiness. That we obviously had I got to look. It at the hard currency cash flow, and I basically learned the skills there. Good, and we're glad you did. What um, would be done today? Um, uh, Repeat some of what you just said in order. We're not taking the hard steps, as you said. What would the hard steps be to parallel what uh, you and Ronald Reagan did uh, back then and take down this threat? basically, we we took seriously and were looking very closely at Russian – uh, activities around uh, around the world in terms of the economic and financial arena. Uh, for example, we're taking uh, 20% of nuclear fuel for the United States is provided by Rosatom, which is one of the most malevolent uh, Russian state-owned enterprises. And yet, uh, we continue to do that to this very day, despite the sarin guessing of children in, in Syria and, their, and Moscow's complicity in same. So, in other words, there's a lot of inconsistencies here. We're not opposing the idea that they're rolling through small NATO member states and non, non-NATO states, uh-huh. uh, buying up critical infrastructure and basically buying up the strategic assets of the countries uh, so that they can impose uh, political, their political will. 
that's not being contested properly. Okay. Uh, the U.S. military and the security community is not paying attention to these issues to nearly the same extent we did in the early 80s, which is ironic seeing we have so many skilled people that could theoretically do this job. So I, I look at it from a particular knothole, Bill, admittedly, uh, but in my field, uh, it's very clear that these guys are enjoying a free lunch program that could be denied them, including access to the U.S. financial system and dollar-denominated uh, dollar denominated transactions if we were really serious about clipping their wings and letting them know that uh, this kind of malevolent behavior that they've demonstrated in Ukraine, to Syria, and elsewhere is simply not going to be tolerated. Uh, we are tolerating it, and uh, it was particularly acute, not surprisingly, under the Obama administration. Okay. All right. Well, we'll hope for that. And uh, can I just ask you this? You may or may not want to answer it. Are you talking to people in the Trump administration? Are you giving this well, advice? Fortunately, we are. And, Good. Uh, okay. and, and we're getting some resonance there, and it's a, it's a welcome change uh, from the fact that we were largely stiff-armed by the uh, previous administration uh, that simply didn't want to roil the global markets and, uh, and see anything uh, like the national security priorities prevail over what they thought was benign commercial activity. It's not. All right. Well, I don't have great access, but believe me, if you ever need it, I'll do my best to knock on the door and introduce you. But I, I know you have other ways in. But I'm very pleased to hear that uh, that uh, they are talking to you, some at least, and uh, hope they hope they will do some more. Roger, uh, they all say we'll be back to you. We mean it. Uh, you, you just know so much. And uh, we're going to take advantage of this opportunity again to speak with you if you'll give it to us. Thanks, Roger Robinson. Well, thank you so much, Bill. You are listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. I'm delighted to welcome to the show my friend Steve Wynn. Steve is the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts. He's also the new finance chair of the Republican National Committee. Steve, the word on the street is that you're raising lots of money and things are going very well at the RNC. Is this true? Well, we've got a wonderful group at the RNC, and, uh, you know, uh, our chairman's a fine woman. She's she's doing a great job, and uh, Madam McDaniels has got her, her, her ankles taped, and she's doing a great job herself. And uh, we're finding that Americans across the nation have recognized that government hasn't been giving them the deal they should for the money that people have been spending on government. And I think most people realize that with the Republican values of a less intrusive government, less strangulating regulations, an intelligent approach to health care, which has been really hurting working people, that the Trump administration and Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell's uh, leading the Senate and the House that those people represent a better opportunity for a better life than the deal they've had for the past eight years with the disastrous Obama administration. I mean, that was really a setback for working people, uh, in spite of all of the baloney rhetoric to the contrary. So people are taking your calls. People are accepting your calls and, and giving money, right? Well, our, but what's really fascinating is the amount of money we're getting in small donations record-breaking fundraising from working people 
folks with 50 and 100 and 500 dollar donations uh it's no surprise that that a higher income level people have supported this most people who run businesses small ones who understand what it takes to start a business have been really really hung up in the last 8 years to the point where it's been a deterrent to even try to start a business and when when the hurdle is so high when the barricade gets that big that it discourages people from trying one of the things that, that guys like you and I know is that when someone has the gumption and the drive to set out and try to start a business and take a chance for their own sake to have a better life they always take their neighbors with them they create jobs and jobs create taxpayers and at this point in the history of our country with a 20 trillion dollar debt there is no way to cut government per se to solve that problem and the problem is that the deficit keeps eroding the value of everybody's paycheck because we increase the money supply to cover the deficit the people realize that understand what's going on that the only way really to fix america is to increase our growth rate beyond the anemic levels of 1 or 2% that we've experienced in the past and get back up to 4 and 5 and that comes from the private sector and from all those wonderful people that are creating small businesses and are growing small businesses you know i i was listening to the rhetoric of the democrats when they heard about mr trump's president trump's tax plan well they're going to lower the top tax rate to 35% and help rich people now that kind of a lie not only demonstrates hypocrisy but it demonstrates the idea that democrats think that the average person doesn't understand that it's a lie the the personal tax rate is a business tax because all the small businesses in america pay their taxes under subchapter S or as partnerships and that is to say the profits in their business are taxed to them as ordinary income even though those small business people let's say that a small business makes 2 million dollars and the owner of that small business pays taxes as if they had 2 million but in fact 25 or 30 or even 50% of their money is tied up in accounts receivable and in paying you know mortgages and stuff like that 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 is to say the personal tax rate isn't the tax rate for rich people it's also the business tax for the driver of our economy the small businesses of america and so when the democrats try and slander it and say it's just a break for rich people they assume that the american public is stupid they're playing on low information voters and trying to encourage class warfare and in the process they stick a needle in the heart yeah the real driver of american job creation aggravates me sure let's come back to this uh record setting because uh, we would understand or we would expect i think most of us who are in this business that you would make as finance chairman of the republican national committee you would make personal calls to 
wealthy people ask them to write big checks. But this influx from, as you say, regular working Joes, this uh, dramatic increase, how does that happen? Do they get the mailers, the stuff that comes in the mail with the RNC uh, return address? Uh, or do they hear from friends? As you said, they bring a friend along. How does this happen? Word of mouth? What's your, well, what's your guess? Well, you, do know, you know, speaking from my own perspective, uh, Bill, I, I spend most of my time talking to state chairman and okay. regional vice chairmen, this organization we've created. Okay. And they're doing the same thing in, in, in this sort of pyramidal uh, structure. But what is interesting about the directly re- uh, responding to your question is that the simple messaging that President Trump did during his campaign and since his reelection, and I'm not talking about tweets, I'm talking about the things he said, you know, on the record, have have energized people to know since the economy is the primary issue in everyone's life, somehow Donald Trump has has made them realize that the Republican values are the ones that are better for them. And so a lot of these donations are self-initiated. Right. Okay. Okay. And you That's... can you you can give Trump credit for that. Sure. You sure can. What about, uh-huh. uh, yeah, I, I was going to say, what about, I want to ask you about two events in the news recently, one connected here to uh, what you're just talking about. We heard, we saw and read about lowest unemployment rate in, what, 10 years, I think, is what was just reported. Um Go ahead. Well, the, the reported the reported uh, numbers are encouraging, but again, we have to remember uh, the enormous percentage of people who are sitting out the job market. Uh, President Trump and I talked about that, and he is very much aware of that. And by encouraging the formation of new businesses, by removing the obstacles that regulations have strangled this process with. He realizes that he can get those people back into the workforce. So the number that we really want to look at is the size of the workforce. And that is what's growing under this Trump influence. And that, more than the, the way the Department of Labor measures the unemployment rate, you know, the Democrats had a drop in unemployment, uh, and Obama jumped up and tried to take credit for it, but they didn't want to talk about this, that the workforce was shrinking. And now the workforce has stopped shrinking, and that that's the Trump effect. And I think probably the sense of it has drifted into the American consciousness and is responsible for this money that's flowing in, because people want more of it. And And if we can... If we can get this job done with donations, if we can get people to uh, to write these checks to the to the RNC, we've got an account called Strengthen the Majority. Corey Gardner and myself and the RNC mm-hmm. and Ronna McDaniels, we formed a joint venture with the Senate re-election uh, and Corey Gardner. And this Strengthen the Majority account is... Dire- you see, what's happened here is that the Freedom Caucus that you read about and hear about the supposedly the extreme right of the House of Representatives and the Tuesday group, which is supposed to be the moderate group. Yeah. Well, the fact of the matter is, it's a little bit of a mislabeling. The Tuesday group, who are supposed to be moderates, it, technically, they're just as committed to the principles 
of tax reform, intelligent immigration that helps America and uh, and healthcare reform as anybody in the Freedom Caucus. The difference is that the the people in the Tuesday group are in swing swing vote areas, and they can lose because they have to appeal to a very broad range of their constituencies. So they're conservative, but they want to make sure that the bills that we pass have the kind of broad appeal uh, in terms of real honesty that are necessary. And and so the people in the in the House who've been in a minority and in terms of the whole government, they knew that Obama would reject anything. They now have to take responsibility for knowing that they're governing, and they have to have a sensitivity to each other. All right, we have to leave it there today, Steve. It's always a privilege to speak with you. That's the show, folks. If you missed any of my previous episodes or interviews, go to BillBennett.com and subscribe. I'll talk to you next week.